0: majority of Texans are with me. They support the freedom to control your own body and the right to decide whether or not to have an abortion.
1: Even Democrat economists warned that the Biden spending plans would lead to runaway inflation, but Biden just kept spending.
0: Every morning when I walk my kids to the bus for school, I worry about whether they will come home safe.
2: Hey, tomorrow's election day, so get out and vote. I know I will appreciate it, and so will the rest of the candidates.
3: Political spending is higher than ever. Campaigns are on track to spend almost $10 billion this year on advertising. That's according to Ad Impact, a company that tracks political ad spending. Candidates up and down the ballot are vying for your vote, but did you know that the ads you see might be totally different than what your neighbor sees. Political candidates and their ad agencies are targeting you on streaming and social media platforms based on what podcasts you listen to, where you buy your clothes, or even what restaurants you visit. What rules are there? And in a world where every digital step we take is tracked, how much do we care? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This show is part of 1A's Remaking America project. Throughout the series, we look at how democracy is and is not working for everyone. We'll be back in just a moment. let's get into the conversation. Joining us in studio today is Lachlan Marque. He covers political spending for Axios. Lachlan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Sheila Krumholtz. She's the executive director of Open Secrets. That's an organization that tracks how money influences politics and policy. Sheila, welcome. Hello, thank you. So Sheila, how much has political spending increased in recent years? It's been crazy to see the
2: Extreme jumps in spending last cycle uh, in the 2020 presidential cycle. Uh, we saw a jump from uh, 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 about uh, seven billion to 14.4 billion, so double uh, the prior presidential cycle. And we're not seeing as big a jump this cycle, but we are seeing increases and in record numbers.
3: Lachlan, what's driving this increase in spending?
1: I think a lot of it is both parties seeking out their sort of core base voters, trying not just to turn them out at the polls, but really energizing them from a fundraising perspective. And in 2020, you saw particularly Democratic candidates, Senate candidates really putting up massive numbers, uh, you know, record-breaking numbers for congressional campaigns. Um, and that that was driven largely by their ability to really fire up core supporters and get them donating in you know relatively small increments ten twenty five fifty dollars but you 're talking millions and millions of people over the course of two years. it adds up very quickly, and both parties have really been trying to hone that grassroots fundraising mechanism and as much as there still is the sort of high dollar post citizens united super PAC landscape where tons of money flows through, I think the engine of Uh, high dollar political spending going forward is going to be each party's ability to harness that grassroots energy from a financial perspective. So what I hear
3: is that as one side spends the other side feels like it has to spend more
1: as well yeah it's sort of an arms race and increasingly these fundraising appeals that are used to try to juice that grassroots fundraising get more and more frantic and over the top and you know have things like promises of donation matching that will never never actually occur but are used to try to lure people in and get them to part with again those small increments that you know multiplied a million plus times over um, really add up.
3: Sheila, when we think about ad spending, I think a lot of folks would expect you know for a Senate race or a presidential election for there to be tons of ad spending. But how far down the ballot is money being spent?
2: Oh, um, it's going all the way down. And in this case, I think what's most interesting in the cycle to see uh, the uh, tens of millions of dollars that are going into secretaries of state races. These used to be the sleepy backwater. Of, uh, of elections, um, election administration roles were not so um, so controversial before, but now are drawing big money. Uh, as our ballot initiatives, and that is especially interesting because we're seeing, of course, unlimited donations in many states, and and um, and even uh, foreign money being allowed to spend. So to be spent. So uh, yeah, the it's it's as if all of the races have become nationalized, and a lot of the big players at the national level are uh, looking down ballot to uh, essentially build a farm team and
3: kind of set the stage for for what's to come. Well, I want to get a little bit more into who's funding these ads, but we heard Sheila reference Citizens United. Lachlan, just remind us what that decision did.
1: So Citizens United said that it is legal for... Uh, corporations, incorporated entities essentially, to spend money directly on politicking. So, you know, it's your traditional for profit companies, but also labor unions, nonprofits. It cleared the way for them to donate directly to political entities. Most are still prohibited from donating to campaigns directly, but it gave rise to this new class of political action committee, the Super PAC, that can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. Uh, as long as they don't directly coordinate with political campaigns or parties um, and taken in conjunction with a uh, uh, another uh, court decision around the same time called Speech Now uh, which struck down uh, contribution limits to those independent groups. It led immediately to a huge influx of money from groups created specifically for that. So today each party has their super PACs, their sort of officially sanctioned groups Um, And, you know, those, their their spending, I believe Senate Leadership Fund is the Republican Senate group, I think has now broken about $225 million in spending just uh, in this election cycle. So it's really, I mean, it's massive amounts of money. Um, and that's definitely contributed to the rise that Sheila is discussing, the record-breaking spending we're seeing each cycle. Um, but, you know, I think it's larger than that. I think uh, both parties are looking for every financial edge they can have. Super PACs are certainly part of that.
3: I, Sheila, when you look at political ad spending this cycle, who are the biggest spenders? Uh, well,
2: we are it's many of the same organizations as Lachlan was saying – uh, that are topping the list of outside spending groups. So especially those party and congressional leadership uh, super PACs, uh, Senate Leadership Fund, um, Congressional, so that's Mitch McConnell's affiliated uh, super PAC, Congressional Leadership Fund is Minority Leader McCarthy's, Senate Majority PAC is is Senate <laughs> Majority Leader Schumer's uh, kind of aligned uh, PAC, and then House Majority PAC. So it's kind of collect them all. Democrats and Republican Party leadership lead these super PACs, which are nominally independent, but uh, clearly are, um, are <laughs> very closely tied to their um, party strategy and the candidates they're promoting. And they're spending, in each case, uh, hun- over $100 uh, million. Uh, and these are... Um, Uh, partially disclosing. They're not even fully disclosing. Even though they are super PACs and super PACs, do need to disclose where their money is coming from to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, in each case, uh, even these party uh, allied committees are only partially disclosing where they get their money from. And in the case of Congressional Leadership Fund, it's a carry committee which means they can spend money directly on giving money to candidates as well as ostensibly giving uh, spending money independently of those candidates. Uh, so so it's, it's kind of a wonky thing.
3: So Lachlan, when we take a, a step back and we look Look at these large entities with millions of dollars, but then we also think about smaller individual donors. What effect do you think those smaller individual donors are having on democracy and, and our politics?
1: So I think m- my take on this is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, you know, I think there's a, a consensus that grassroots donations and grassroots financial support are inherently uh, healthier for democracy than high dollar donors or super PACs. Um, You know, it may be the case depending on your interpretation, but one I think underappreciated aspect of the rise of the small dollar donor operation is a sort of uh, an incentive structure that encourages radicalization and partisanship. And what I mean by that is – you know, you, you the, the top fundraisers. If you look at the top fundraisers in the House of Representatives, there are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, Devin Nunes before he retired uh, earlier this year. There are people who are really able to fire up the grassroots energy of their respective parties. Very often, with stridently ideological um, and aggressive fundraising appeals, that is what really motivates your grassroots donors who you know, can be these huge engines of uh, campaign finance success. So the incentive structure that I think that creates, particularly for candidates, an increasing number of candidates who are not in competitive congressional districts, is to be really extreme and really sort of out there and outrageous and to be very public-facing, to have – uh, almost public relations as your legislative strategy, um, the rise of the sort of celebrity legislator I think is very tied in with this. Um, so to the extent that you know a more centrist or uh, you know, compromise-oriented politics would be beneficial for the country – I think this reliance on small-dollar donors actually discourages that.
3: We got this tweet from Bill Spaulding, who says, On television here in Indiana, I've only been seeing Republican ads and Democratic ads only appear on Facebook and Instagram. Well, we want to hear what you're seeing. Tweet us at 1A or email us at 1A at wamu.org. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is George Potts. He's a digital marketing consultant with NARTAC Media Group. He helps build digital ad strategy for political campaigns. George, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: So your agency works year-round on all kinds of advertising, but right now you're getting political clients from both sides of the aisle. How do you advise them to invest in digital advertising to make the most impact?
4: Yes. And and just to clarify, um, we don't work on both sides of the aisle. We only work on the left side of the political spectrum. We're advising them. It's very limited in regards to the digital landscape where you can place political, and issue advertising. So the majority of their spend is in Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram, Google, which is Search, YouTube, and Display, and we're not big fans of Display, so it's primarily Search and YouTube, and then Spotify, um, Spotify is. we also look at Spotify as a digital channel, um, their podcast, they've opened their podcast, political advertising, and then over-the-internet television, OTT, so that's, that's streaming television. We work with each client to identify the across those four venues the best spend for the result that they're looking for.
3: Now media usage has changed dramatically in the internet age. How important is traditional broadcast TV advertising today?
4: Traditional broadcast is extremely important um, as in combination with other vehicles. And so we look holistically and we provide a media plan that touches if it's a very narrow um, constituency or, or group, we have a plan for that, and television is, is typically for that. If it's a state house or a state um, senate race in a certain state, um, broadcast television may not be the best vehicle because you have to buy television on a DMA broadcast where is an OTT, you can narrow it down by zip codes that sit within that state house or state senate seat.
3: Well, and again, just clarify, DMA, OTT, what that means? DMA stands for designated market area.
4: That is how um, television markets are bought throughout the United States. And it's based on metro. So if you take the Pittsburgh DMA, for instance, the Pittsburgh DMA, is a big swath of southwestern pennsylvania almost up to, to erie and it also includes parts of maryland the west virginia panhandle and ohio so it even extends outside of the state and ott ott is over the internet television that is how 90 80 to 90 percent of individuals now consume their television content is through streaming mm-hmm.
3: Now, political speech has more stipulations than other advertising in digital spaces. What rules and parameters do you have to work within?
4: So we work within the any local, like if there's any like local silent periods or anything like that that has to be abided by. Additionally, each of the platforms have very, very strict guidelines now. So in the intro to this, um, you mentioned that we would talk about how we use personal data to target advertising. All of the platforms have removed being able to target by political, um, political. You know, Facebook used to identify people by very liberal, liberal, moderate, conservative, very conservative. That's gone. Any sensitive, anything they deem a sensitive issue. So you can no longer target individuals that may have an interest in um, the Jewish Federation or the NAACP, et cetera. It is very limited in regards to age, gender, and interest categories that they don't find sensitive. And so what we do is on these platforms, for instance, we are running a campaign for a Latino issue advocacy group. We can no longer target Latinos on Meta, on Facebook and Instagram. But what we can target is we can target individuals that have an interest in um, Hispanic media channels, such as Univision, such as um, Telemundo, such as um, Nickelodeon uh, Latino, such as Disney, uh, Hispanic Disney. And we use those, which isn't that much different than broadcast television, where you're looking at certain shows that reach certain demographics. Mm. And so over the last two election cycles, how you buy digital advertising has drastically changed, and it's a misnomer. You know, Anyone, any journalist or public that thinks that deep personal data is being used on these platforms. That's just false. That's just so, not true. So
3: you're talking about meta, but what on other platforms? What about on other platforms like Twitter, for instance, or I mean, there's or TikTok, for instance? TikTok does not allow political advertising. Twitter does not
4: allow political advertising.
3: We'll get a little bit into TikTok a little later because there has been paid political speech that's popped up there, sponsored political speech. But I think when people hear you say deep personal information. You're still able to glean a good amount of information about what a person might be attracted to by like you said seeing whether they're watching Spanish language media. So how are you gleaning that information to try to make sure your digital strategy is is an accurate one that it's going to work for your clients? Yeah,
4: so we still rely on the platforms and first party data is very important. So when we work with issue av- advocacy groups, and there's limits on what you can use. And so first-party data means it's a database that you upload to the platform and then you you can advertise. However, there are, there are very strict restrictions now on first-party data when it comes to political and issue advocacy campaigns on the platforms. There's things that, that you can't do.
3: But, George, I mean, there is a strategy here that you want to get certain ads to certain demographics. Is that fair to say? That's always the case. Okay. So do you think that funneling certain ads to certain people – Impacts our public discourse. It absolutely does.
4: It, it impacts the, the discourse just as if they've heard an ad on terrestrial radio, or on broadcast television, or in or in some other or in direct mail. It, it's the it's the same because, and it's it's unfortunate. Like take Bailey O'Rourke's campaign uh, when he ran for um, Senate, he had a very advanced campaign. They had fifty different landing pages on his website that had his position on very narrow topics like agriculture, immigration, et cetera. And then at the time, they could target people that had an interest in that agricultural issue or that immigration issue and present his position on that. I think that is excellent for for civil discourse. It's unfortunate that people abused that targeting both foreign actors and, and domestic entities and um, to, to, to aggravate and to, in, to um, increase negativity or, or so forth. But in any campaign, whether it's an issue campaign and you're looking at certain swing districts to move something through um, a certain subcommittee or committee, or you're looking at a political campaign and you have some swing districts, there's always a number of issues that are going to help swing voters to um, a certain candidate or to support a certain issue.
3: We got this email from Melanie in Ohio who says, I'm a diehard liberal, but I must admit both sides are guilty of dumbing down the American public. Shame on all the ad agencies and PR companies who are creating these ads and messages. They only serve to polarize and certainly don't educate. George, I'm sure you hear plenty of... Uh, criticism of the work you do around political advertising. How do you respond to people who feel like the ads are part of why the country is more polarized right now?
4: I'm just going to pause because advertising, yes, this is a critique that comes up every election cycle. I am not a big fan of negative political advertising. Um, However, that critique, the electorate responds to it. It wouldn't run if it didn't achieve results. And that's why they're seeing all of that. I like to think in our approach, like you take, let's take um, paid family leave in Pennsylvania. Paid family leave in Pennsylvania, two years ago, we, we we renamed that the Family Care Act. Okay, because there's there's immediate negative response. In Pennsylvania you have two metro areas and you have a Republican T. Okay. The Republican T is, is Harrisburg and then the, the northern side. As soon as you say paid family leave, certain constituencies immediately you know, without educate, you know, without reading up on our they're, they're just against it. Okay. So it is about caring for the family. And certain constituencies don't need child care. But we know that that act is also about taking care of elderly parents. Well, there's a lot of individuals on the opposite side of the political spectrum. When I say opposite, we're on the left; they're on the right. And when you talk about this act and say, "Oh, you can take six paid weeks, and you don't need that for your children because your family," but there's no vehicle for you to take care of your elderly parents. In that, this act will help with that. That is something that resonates. That's about education. That's about informing someone about many facets of a piece of legislation that maybe they didn't consider because it was named a certain way or they didn't think about the legislation in, in that facet. I believe advertising, whether that's on television, terrestrial radio, streaming television, or on our social media platform, that's informative like that on a piece of legislation or a candidate, that supports civil discourse and that should happen.
3: That's George Potts in Pittsburgh. He's a digital consultant for the ad agency NARTAC Media Group. George, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We'll be back with more of our discussion of political ads after the break. And connect with us on Twitter. Send us a question for a future show or just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Jean in Wisconsin.
2: I have not lived in a state for more than 15 years. However, that state's political parties continue to contact me. I believe there are huge profits to be made in the continual solicitation and selling of these telephone numbers, mailing lists, outdated registries.
3: Let's bring one more voice into the conversation. Joining us from Berlin, Germany, is Brandy Gerkink. She's a senior policy fellow with Mozilla. That's a free software developer that advocates for Internet privacy. Brandy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Brandy, to what extent is our personal data in America out there for anyone to take?
0: It absolutely is. I believe that there's actually more loopholes than there are limitations on the use of personal data in political advertising, um, despite, you know, um, increased policies that platforms have have put into place. And I think this is also due in part to the lack of... um, federal legislation around data privacy in the US. So there is still a huge market um, around the, the the buying of personal data and then uploading that um, onto social media platforms for, for advertising. For example, the majority of US political ads on Facebook and Instagram um, use uploaded and match lists of voters for their targeting. Um, at the same time, they're still virtually no user-facing explanations of why and how people got on these lists in the first place.
3: Some people might be concerned that law enforcement or a government entity would have access to our personal data. But why does it matter if a political candidate or an ad agency has it?
0: Yeah, I think that online political ads can have enormous influence. They can micro-target, manipulate, misinform voters at a level unmatched by any other form of political speech. So we were talking earlier on about the comparison to to broadcast communication. Um, The fact is, with digital ads, these are served to a single user um, at a time. This is inherently different from broadcast ads, which are seen by many people at a time, and also have a degree of sort of um, implicit transparency within them. Because If you're a journalist or a rival, you know, campaign group or a viewer, you can sort of understand the strategy based on the market, the time, the television station or show that an ad was aired on. Um, And we don't have nearly that level of insight into targeting of, of digital ads.
3: We got this tweet from Carrie, who says, I'm in Georgia and I've seen ads nonstop from both parties and all sorts of packs. We even see them while streaming. A commercial break on streaming service was 100% political ads, back to back to back. We just tune them all out at this point. And Marion, Kentucky emails, I do not use social media. And during the campaign season, I do not watch broadcast or cable TV because I cannot tolerate the political messages. Instead, I just spend over two hours with my sample ballot looking up each candidate's web presence, particularly searching out their meaningful experience and substantive answers to important questions. Everything else is just noise. Lachlan, how are campaigns dealing with that side of the equation that in this inundation of political ads, some people just tune it all out?
1: Well, I think that's part of the appeal of digital ads and the way that you know and and these targeting decisions that are available to them is you know if you can think of broadcast ads, traditional TV ads as sort of like a sledgehammer, you know, you're throwing money on the air. You know, you may choose which show you want to advertise on depending on the folks you're trying to reach, but on the whole it's a very blunt instrument when it comes to political advertising. Digital ads are like a scalpel. You can spend far less. Say you know, you're know, you running a broadcast ad that's going to be seen by a million people. Say you're advertising in a World Series game. You know, maybe only 50,000 of those people um, you know, who see that ad are going to respond to it and do what you want them to do after seeing it, whether it's vote a certain way or give to your campaign or what have you. Wouldn't it be better if you were a campaign to just target those fifty thousand people rather than the other nine hundred fifty thousand who aren't going to do anything and spend the accompanying money? To, you know, essentially waste that money to run that ad. An ad, I think, is what these political ads allow these campaigns to do—not perfectly, to a, but to a much greater extent than traditional advertising. And the spend on a single digital ad is much smaller because you're reaching far fewer people. But the people you are reaching are the people that you know with certain confidence. Based on those very detailed targeting criteria you've put in, are going to be the ones who will respond to that, or are the ones who you know you are you really want that message to reach? Um, that makes it much more efficient and probably reduces the amount of reactions you get like that like you did from your listeners that you know they're just seeing ads they're not interested in don't apply to them and they're just sick of seeing you know maybe as a campaign you don't want those people seeing your ads you're just going to turn them off digital advertising potentially provides a way to do that
3: for people who are concerned about their digital privacy what regulations do we have right now in the US that actually Give us some control over how our data is used
1: yeah, you know the, the the data privacy legislation i'm not as much of an expert on. What I can tell you though is that the the disclosure of this targeting information is something that is severely lacking so if you want to see say you see an ad in your Facebook feed and you want to see how that ad reached you, Facebook has a very good political ad archive that provides lots of information about what advertisers are doing with these ads. It's not perfect, but it is pretty good. And it's much better than the vast majority of digital properties that are serving political ads, particularly on the uh, the TV streaming side, which is you know, becoming a massive source of political ads. The public disclosure of not just even the targeting criteria going into that level, but just who is spending what amount of money on digital ads – is just not available on some of these really large platforms, places like Hulu or or Disney Plus. Um and, uh, you know, and that presents a really – I think a really significant issue for transparency and public accountability and the ability of voters and the press to look into who's running the ads and what exactly they're doing with them. Digital ads are not subject to the same campaign finance disclosure requirements that TV ads are. And so we rely to a much larger extent on the platforms themselves to disclose this information. Uh, some of them have done a great job with that. Some of them have not.
3: Well, Brandy, part of what I'm hearing from both you and Lachlan is is that these platforms, social media platforms especially, are really determining for themselves the rules that they want to follow and and how they're going to set up, not just how the speech is regulated, but also the transparency around it. So, what does that mean for users ultimately?
0: Yeah, I think the big problem is that Facebook and you know other platforms like Google, they're advertising platforms. They're Designed for micro targeting, so they are designed you know to uh, use personal data points to sell people shampoo right but that 's a fundamental there 's a fundamental difference between targeting people with ads for a shampoo brand that they might like and targeting people you know a news a news outlet targeting people with ads who specifically you know appeal. Uh, to conservative viewpoints or liberal viewpoints. And I think that that's where these problems are coming into play. So the incentives um, for the, the platforms are, are actually quite misaligned with democratic discourse that is, is more open and actually um, brings you know, public debate uh, into a more centralized
3: forum. Well, TikTok is one platform that doesn't allow paid political advertising, but sometimes posts like these still get through.
0: Hi guys, welcome to a day in my life as a political influencer. So I'm getting flown out to West Palm Beach, Florida by Turning Point USA because I'm an influencer for them for the Student Action Summit. And I'm so excited to meet everyone and see all my friends again. But I had to get up at 3 a.m. for my flights, but then finally arrived. The weather was great. Saw Galen, my best friend. We went shopping and then we went to go get some macaroons.
3: Now, the poster there says her trip was paid for by Turning Point USA. That's a conservative advocacy organization. And the organization's website also lists her as part of the, quote, official Turning Point USA TikTok. Brandy, how does paid political speech still make its way onto a platform that says it doesn't allow it?
0: Yeah, so this is happening. This is um, in in 2021, uh, me and my colleague Becca Ricks did some research looking into uh, these kind of influencer advertisements on TikTok. And what we found was were several examples of um, TikTok, uh, TikTok's ban on political advertisements, there just being a big loophole in it. So we found that um, partisan groups in the US on both sides of the political spectrum were simply paying influencers on the platform to relay their political messaging.
3: Well, Lachlan, I'm curious what, what you're watching specifically around dis and misinformation as we head up uh, through the midterm season and and how it's being regulated or not on these sites.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of campaigns have, you know, it's been sort of left to them to try to police the airwaves in their own races. We had a story the other day about the... Huge number of cease and desist letters that are being sent to TV stations. Um, that that's public information. I have no doubt that uh, you know similar demands have been sent to digital platforms as well. Um, essentially saying you are airing false and defamatory ads. Um, you know you very quickly run into First Amendment issues with this because you know the. There is not and and in my view should not be a centralized sort of government apparatus to police what is and is not true information in a political context and take action against elected officials or candidates accordingly but uh you know so so in other words, if you're a station and you're airing an ad from a political candidate, you cannot be held liable for defamation um, as that station because there's a you know a sense that um you know it is not your view it is not the government's view in that situation to uh, uh, to, to decide, you know, what is true, what is not true and and act accordingly. Um, I do think that, you know, Brandy made a very good point with, you know, the algorithmic amplification of a lot of this misinformation. You know, I think it, I wouldn't overstate the extent to which it is, you know, a symptom of paid advertising. I think a lot of this is organic. The – you know, it's the problem is us. You know, <laughs> the users of these platforms is where a lot of this misinformation comes from, and I, I think in an ideal world, paid promotion on these platforms could be used actually as a way to counteract that. Um, you know, if you are a, a government agency or an opposing campaign, you know, putting more information into the public domain and using paid promotion as a way to try to compete with these sort of viral, organic misinformation campaigns and make sure that the people who see that are also seeing your corrective, I think, could actually be an example of a very productive use of this sort of paid advertising.
3: Brandy, I'm curious to hear from you on the policy side of things, whether it's about regulating the collecting and selling and use of our data or around the proliferation of misinformation online. What do you think needs to happen from a policy perspective?
0: Yeah, I think that first and foremost is kind of greater transparency. Um, I think that the points that Lachlan made are great around algorithmic amplification. However, the fact remains that there is not actually any level of transparency around algorithms um, on social media platforms that would actually enable you know regulators, research groups, the public to actually be able to understand you know what kind of content is being promoted to whom just organic content being amplified in our, our Twitter feeds or our Facebook feeds. And on what basis? Um, I think, with regard to you know election ads, there really is a need for. Um for remedies within the overall ecosystem of data that can be used to target people. So even if you know Facebook has restrictions around what kind of targeting advertisers can use um, to, to send ads to people, but you can actually just go off and there's an entire marketplace for buying that data elsewhere and then uploading it, that's still a huge lo- loophole in the system. So I think that that there's um, a variety of remedies um, and and also causes in terms of what, what contributes to an overall um, ecosystem that's just more and more um, polarized.
3: And just in a sentence or two, Brandy, is there any sense of urgency on the part of platforms to shift their positions on paid political speech in the future?
0: I haven't seen much uh, movement towards greater transparency. So there's been movement around restrictions and limitations, but very little done around the kind of transparency that's desperately needed.
3: That's Brandi Gerking. She's a senior policy fellow at Mozilla, a free software developer that advocates for internet privacy. And with us in studio today was Lachlan Marque. He covers political spending for Axios. Brandi, Lachlan, thanks to you both. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. This is 1A.